I'd like for you to take your Bibles that you bring every Sunday morning to church and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. There is a pew Bible there if you need to get one, but it's great to have your own Bible and uh, open up to Acts. The book of the Acts of the Apostles comes after the very first four Gospels in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the Acts of the Apostles. We're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Luke is talking about what happened to the disciples about 50 days, 49, 50 days after um, the uh, uh, death of Jesus on the cross, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages or tongues as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own language. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying one to another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said, Oh, they're drunk on new wine. And may God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together and worship. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to sing and lift up our voices for your praise and for your glory and for your honor. We also thank you, Father, for the ability to be a congregation of believers who come together unified in the Holy Spirit for the purpose of declaring your magnificent acts and for declaring the joy and the wonder and the great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, this morning, since you are here already, that we will recognize your presence and that we will recognize the presence of the Holy Spirit who is to teach us and to comfort us 
and help us grow as believers in Jesus Christ. Please, Father, help us to yield our hearts to the Holy Spirit so the Holy Spirit might open our minds, our hearts, our faith, and deepen us and mature us as Christian believers so that we too can go out from this place and proclaim in the languages of the world the wonderful acts of our Father and primarily, especially, the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross. We do pray for our nation and our world because they desperately need the Prince of Peace. We need to hold on to him and to take our refuge and trust in him in times of pandemics and earthquakes and all kinds of tragedies that are happening across the globe. Help us to be a faithful body of believers unified together in proclaiming Christ Jesus, in studying the word, and Father, in maturing as our faith in Jesus Christ. These things we pray in Jesus' wonderful and holy name. Amen. Amen. You know, this is a hot day. It's gotten kind of hot. And I think they're saying that the heat index is supposed to go up over 100, 104. So for some of us, this won't be a very good day. But there are good days, maybe in the spring when it's nice and cool or in the fall. We always get really upset when it gets cold in the winter and wish for the summer. And then when the summer gets here, we get the dog days of July and August. We wish we were back in winter again. I'll bet there are a couple of special days in your life, days that really changed something about your life, your, your experiences. I don't know, it may be the moment that you got married, the moment that you had a child, maybe the moment you got that dream job, the moment that something happened to you. I hope a special day in your life is the moment, the day that you ask Jesus into your heart as Lord and Savior. Well, there are a lot of important days in Scripture. We can read through the history and find out that there were days that changed things. So, for example, we might think of day six of creation when God made us in his image and in his likeness. Well, that must have been a day. I mean, we had Adam and Eve. We were, we were born. We, we began. It's, it's, it's a great day in history. Maybe thinking about Moses and the burning bush, the day he met God, the burning bush, or perhaps the dedication of the tabernacle with Moses and Aaron when they dedicated the tabernacle to God's worship at Sinai for the people of Israel to be God's people. Well, perhaps even we could think of the dedication of the temple, both the dedication of the tabernacle and the dedication of the temple by Solomon were days when the fire came down from heaven and burned up the sacrifice. Very important times. In the New Testament, of course, there are plenty of important days. We celebrate the birth of Jesus, Christmas Day, and we also recognize on Good Friday his death and on Easter Sunday his resurrection. We might argue that they are the most important days of all, in the New Testament. But there is also one other day that should for the believer also be a day of significance and importance, a day that we think about and remember and give God glory and honor and praise for because it's the day 
that Jesus prophesied after he ascended into heaven that he would not leave us alone. That indeed, as Brother Randy, Pastor Randy read, he would send another comforter. And that comforter would help to grow us, mature us, and lead us in the ways in which God would have us to go, in God's will, and in the teaching of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's exactly what happened in the events that we just read in chapter 2 of Acts. It's the coming of the Holy Spirit. We call it the day of Pentecost. And I wanted to take a few minutes to look at this because there's a purpose to my madness always, I guess. Sometimes there isn't. I'm just plain old crazy. But there is generally a purpose to my madness. And the purpose is to get us to understand that as a church that is trying to evaluate where we need to go, to seek God's will, and to live that will in terms of being a ministry, a lighthouse here in this community, and in terms of looking and calling a pastor, we need more than anything else to seek the, the power and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit to fill us, the Holy Spirit to teach us, the Holy Spirit to show us the directions to go and what to do. And that's what we're praying God will help us do during this interim time and transition time. We want to be able to say, Lord, lead us. And the Holy Spirit is a critical part of that leadership. Jesus gave him to be another comforter. The word comforter in, in the New Testament in Greek is paraclete. Is that right, Brother Dan? And as far as I can tell, paraclete is an advocate, comforter, the one who stands beside us. So if I, I get arrested, God forbid, I don't know why, but if I get arrested and I have to go to stand in the court, the paraclete is the advocate who stands beside me. I think that's how one of the meanings of it used in the Old Testament. But he's in there to say, it's going to come out okay. <laughs> it's going to be all right. Now, he is the one who teaches me the right way to go. So for the church, embarking on this quest in, in looking for a new pastor, we need the comforter. We need that paraclete. We need that advocate to teach us and to help us serve the Lord. So this day, the day of Pentecost, the day the Holy Spirit came, should not be really forgotten. It should be celebrated. It should be examined and it should be meditated upon and thought about because, you know, we're Baptists and we don't have much to do with the Holy Spirit. You know, we've already said that. We want to be Baptists. But to be a Christian means that we understand the role and the position and the need for the Holy Spirit. So I wanted to share this passage this morning because... It's in the book of Acts, and it begins to lead us to understand how the early church became the church, how the believers became a church, and how they then begin to live in a way that honors God. And, as I mentioned last Sunday, the book of Acts really is not no, so much the Acts of the Apostles as it is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. We ask God to teach us how to live with the Holy Spirit in our lives so that we can give him glory and honor. And all that's part of this. So I wanted to share this because it's the very first time that it came, the Holy Spirit for the church. Now, the Holy Spirit had come earlier and fallen on individual people. It had actually remained with a few people like Moses and David, we're told, had the Holy Spirit. 
But not everybody did. But here is where the Holy Spirit comes on the believers. And where the Holy Spirit has been promised when we became Christians, guess what? We got the Holy Spirit. So we'll be talking more about that. But let's look at this text here and understand what's, what's going on. Well, the first thing I want us to notice is the extraordinary importance of that day. This day didn't start out real quiet. It started out with a bang, with a special event happening that equaled some of the ways in which God had actually interacted with the people of Israel, like the dedication of the tabernacle, the dedication of the um, temple, um, Elijah on Mount Carmel. Some big things were happening, and this is a big day. So we need to recognize that it's important. Let's look in chapter uh, 2, verses 1 through 3. We t we're told that, that, first of all, there is a timing thing going on here that, that's important for us to recognize. Number one is that this timing took place when the believers were gathered together in one place. Now, we don't know exactly what they were doing, but earlier in chapter 1, we learned that they generally got together and they began to worship and pray and look at the scriptures. And so we're assuming that that's what was happening here. They're in worship. They're praying. They're seeking the prophecy and the promise that Jesus would send another comforter. And so they're all together. They're not separated in different places or separated in different purposes. They have come together in one place, and that assumes, it sort of implies that they're all in unity, wanting God to move in their lives. That's important for a church. If you want to call a new pastor, it's not just a job, it's not just somebody you pay to do things. You gotta want it to be together in ministry for God's purpose. And they were there, they were seeking I'm, I'm, I'm assuming they were seeking God's purpose. They didn't all scatter and go back to their homes. They were still in Jerusalem. They were still there. And they were what? As we learned earlier, they were waiting on the coming of the Holy Spirit. So the timing happens when they were all together. I guess that would say the same for us. God's timing is when we're together. When we're having one purpose, we're seeking his promises, we're seeking his ministry, we're seeking his care and love for us and the power of the Holy Spirit. God does things when his people are unified, when they come together. The second thing is that God doesn't do things quietly, um, always. Sometimes he does things in a big way. And this was a big thing. In verse 2, we're told that when they were all together in one place, in verse 2, suddenly, behold, look, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven. And it filled the whole house where they were staying. Now, uh, it's like you opened up the doors and you had a huge hurricane wind and it just came in, Right? But that's not exactly what's implied here. What's implied here is that the word wind is also translated in the Old Testament as breath and as spirit. It's the same word. 
spirit, wind, breath. And the, and the actual imagery of the Holy Spirit is the wind coming. In Ezekiel 37, you may have heard of the passage of the dry bones. Uh, God shows Ezekiel these bunch of dry bones on the ground. And God says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, God only knows, sort of. And he says, God, you know. And God says, okay, so what I want you to do is prophesy that the sinews and all that come up and, you know, get the knee bone connected to the knee bone and all that. And yet they're standing up, but there's no life in them. All right, you know, remember that passage? So what does God say? He says, prophesy to the four winds that the wind, the breath, the spirit comes into them. And he does, and they become alive. So the wind symbolizes the coming of the Holy Spirit. We don't say that the spirit is a wind, but this rushing wind that comes in, in my opinion, is nothing other than the coming of the Holy Spirit. Comes like a wind from everywhere, anywhere. You can't tell where the spirit is, but it comes rushing in like a torrent, like a great violent rushing wind and it literally filled the whole house where they were. Now, when we talk about being spirit-filled or the church service is being spirit-led, we want the spirit to be here because the presence of the spirit, when you think about this, we believe in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, where the spirit is, God is, right? And where God is, the spirit is. Jesus too, we talk about the Trinity. The three, you know, one God, three different, I won't go into the large, long theological explanation for that, but you get the picture, all of a sudden they're empty. Somebody didn't throw the wind doors open and there wasn't a hurricane that showed up. What happened when they were all together in the right timing with the right unity, the spirit showed up. And it wasn't a little, oh gee, a nice little breeze. It was a big coming, all there. And it literally filled the whole place. When Isaiah went to the temple, he saw God holy and lifted up and his presence filled the temple. The Holy Spirit's presence filled the place. That was a Holy Ghost revival. He was there. And that was the torrent. It was, it was important that they recognize this. Now, as a symbol of this and a symbol from the Old Testament of the actual coming of the presence of God, if you follow me here, all of a sudden there were these flames of fire, torches that separated. It says this in verse 3, they saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. I want to tell you, this is so powerful, so significant to me. You've got to understand that in the Old Testament, when God accepted the people of Israel as, as his people, in the tabernacle, God came and his presence was there. The tabernacle symbolized God's presence. The tabernacle was where God was. His presence was there. And when it moved, they moved. When it stopped, they stopped. And it had a, a flame of fire and it had smoke. It had the, the cloud of the pillar of, of cloud and the flame. And God's presence was there. 
But what God did when they dedicated that to God, he brought the fire from heaven right down on the sacrifice, right? Now, every time God does that in the Old Testament, it's the same thing. God's fire comes down on the sacrifice. God's fire came down and rested on each one of them. What were each one of them supposed to be? The sacrifice, a a living sacrifice given to God, as Paul said in Romans 12. But also, uh, when you understand that, they were the very place where God had decided to rest his presence. Now, the tabernacle had God's presence. The temple had God's presence. God's presence I would say showed up when Elijah and the, uh, on the top of Mount Carmel and all the sacrifice was eaten up. God's presence now shows up where? In that place where they're unified, where they're seeking the Lord, the Holy Spirit comes and it fills the place. It must have been amazing. It must have been a wonderful experience. I want to tell you, the world will take note, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, of any church that's filled with the Holy Spirit, because that's where God is. And when we come together in worship, we ought to be willing to recognize that we're actually wanting to be in the very presence of God. And the way to do that is to allow the Holy Spirit to fill us. And for us to yield ourselves to the Lord God and to understand that what we do in worship isn't just show up so some angel in heaven can write our name down that we've done our duty. This is a joyous thing. This is a life-changing thing. This day made a difference for every single believer because not only did it symbolize the actual coming of the Holy Spirit, as the New Testament tells us, Paul tells them, it is the down payment, the earnest of what God is going to do in our lives and God is going to do in the lives, the life of this church together. So we should seek to know what the Holy Spirit is all about. We need to make sure that we don't grieve the Holy Spirit, as Paul said, or we don't quench the Holy Spirit, as Paul also said. We need to make sure that we allow the Holy Spirit to move in our hearts, to deepen our faith, to teach us, to guide us, direct us, to keep us from temptation, and to help us be that faithful temple. Because Paul told us again, our bodies, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are God's people so that wherever we are, we are witnessing to what Jesus did on the cross and what God did in raising him again on the third day. It all works together. It isn't separate stuff. Oh, we decided to make a religion. So in this religion, we're going to do A, B, and let's throw in C and try and D. No, this is all organized through God's grace and love and mercy for us so that we work this together. This is an amazing thing. The torches came on everybody's head. And what that did was another amazing thing. In verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in different tongues. Now, this phrase here means different languages. It can mean a tongue, but in the Old Testament and in those days, your tongue is what you spoke. In other words, your language. It had to do with your speaking. And what's happening here is that God made it possible through the Holy Spirit to get a witness. God made it possible through the power of the Holy Spirit to declare his great and mighty acts. 
Because all of these people who were supposed to be Galileans, and they were, miraculously began to speak in different tongues. Now, it wasn't so that they could feel good about their faith. These tongues were not unknown tongues, as we find out later. But what happened is that God made it possible, and this is what I want us to kind of catch and understand, that not only is the coming when we're gathered together, not only is God's filling of us through the power of the Holy Spirit tremendously amazing and significant and powerful, not only is God showing that he's accepting our faith, our positions, because of what Jesus did on the cross, that's the tongues of fire, he's accepting the sacrifice. Not of us, because none of us could ever warrant salvation, but what Jesus did on the cross. But God's saying, hey, that's cool. This is good. You're the body. You're the believers. Not only is God doing that, but this is what you need to understand too. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is empowering us to be witnesses. Isn't that what Jesus said <laughs> right before he ascended into heaven? He said this, um, but verse eight of chapter one, but you will receive power, dynamite. We talked about that. When the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses. This is exactly what Jesus said. This is exactly the prophecy that's coming to place here. They get to be witnesses. And God gives them the ability to be witnesses. I think it's a miracle. They begin to speak in languages that they don't know. And the whole point of it is to give them the ability to tell others about Jesus. Now, I'd be scared silly if I thought it was only on my count and my ability and my strength that I could tell people about Jesus. But I don't have to be scared because it isn't me. God will help me through the Holy Spirit to share with others what he has done for them when Jesus died on the cross and he raised Jesus on the third day. Do you, do you understand the importance of that? God is not leaving us alone to fend for ourselves as best we can. God is giving us the Holy Spirit Spirit as the advocate, as the comforter, as the helper, the one who will help us do this. And the Holy Spirit here is giving them the ability to witness. So I don't want to get caught up on the idea that they're, it's a miracle and they're speaking different tongues or languages. That's really not the purpose. The purpose of what they're telling us, Luke is telling us, is that this results in a massive witness. It actually results in so many people hearing in so many different languages all the things that God is that Peter even gets up to deliver the very first ever Christian sermon. And when he gets done, thousands receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's what's so amazing about this. God wants us to understand that when the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts, it is also there to enable us and empower us to be the believers, to be the witnesses that he wants us to be. And all we have to do is say, yes, Lord, and yield to the power of the Holy Spirit, yield to the Spirit. Let's look in verse four again at the beginning and, and talk about the impact 
that this had, this event had on the disciples. In verse 4, 4a, it says, now they are all filled, then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And of course, we're told that as they began to speak in different tongues, as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. They didn't invent it. They didn't come up with it. God gave them the ability to do it. But I want to say that there's two things that are important here in this verse that we also don't want to miss. One is the fact that they were all filled. Okay? They're, they were all filled. It isn't that there was just one guy over here and another lady over there and a little child over there. They were all filled. That is the unity of the believers in Christ Jesus. I believe that when you come to know Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes into your life. You don't need a second filling, a second baptism. I believe that he's there. The very presence of God is in your life. If God is in your life, Jesus is in your life, guess who comes along? The Holy Spirit. You know, you can't get away from the Holy Spirit. He comes too, right? It's all the baggage. You get God, you get Jesus. Oh, then you don't have to go out and try to get the Holy Spirit, beg, plead, whatever. He's there already, okay? So the point is, I want us to know that they were all filled. It says that. Now, then they were all filled. That means the Holy Spirit is in each one of our lives if we know Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. Now, the problem, of course, might be how much we yield to the Holy Spirit, how much we allow the Holy Spirit to teach us, where we are in our walk with Christ as we learn to be filled by the Spirit. That's another issue and a story that we need to talk about because what does it mean that you're filled with the Holy Spirit? What do you do? How does that work itself out as I live with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Well, that's pretty cool because that's a lot of what the rest of the Bible, the New Testament tells us. And that's what we're called to do as we wait until Jesus comes back again. Because Jesus promised that if he had to go, he would send another comforter. And the whole promise is that he's coming back again. And that's wonderful. So we live in the meantime with the other comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, which is everything we need until Jesus comes again. But the point is, the extraordinary impact on these disciples is that they were all filled. Hey, these guys weren't really the cream of the crop culturally. You had Peter, the fisherman. You had all kinds of different people. There was the couple of those ladies of the evening that followed Jesus. There were people in there for good or for bad, a tax collector, a thief, all these other kinds of people were there. And guess what? They were all filled because they believed in Jesus. And that's what's important. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter whether you think you're great or not. Jesus will fill you with his Holy Spirit when you come to know him as your Lord and Savior. And that Holy Spirit will help you to have a life beyond your wildest dreams if you allow Jesus to direct you and the Holy Spirit to lead you to do God's will. I wanted you to see that they were all filled, but secondly, they, were, they had, a, they had a, a message, they had a task, they had an unction, that's a funny word, unction, but it means a desire, a pressure, a point, something you've got to do. You just got to do it. And what they had to do was to speak to these people. 
It says here in, in this verse four as well, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and the implication is they all began to speak in different tongues. But it does say, as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. So maybe some didn't speak as much in different languages, but they began to speak. They began to testify. They began to shout to the rafters how great God was and what he did in giving his son Jesus to die on the cross. That's just downright amazing. They began to have a Holy Ghost revival and the place was rocking. The Holy Spirit had come. They're witnessing, they're testifying. It's amazing. And you know what's going to happen? When that happens, it's going to draw a crowd, right? I'll tell you what, some people think that they have to follow every single little fad or formula of church growth that comes along. I, by, in two Sundays, I can have, if we didn't have COVID virus, I could have this place packed to the rafters and people outside waiting to get in. It's easy. All I have to do is come and select a certain place, different times, put a $100 bill or a $1,000 bill. I don't even know if they make those anymore. Put a couple of $100 bills underneath and tape it to the pew and let people come in and they get to look. Or I could do a raffle as long as they get here and give them something. But that's not the purpose of God. But I want to tell you something. Let the Holy Ghost bring a revival to the people of a local church and you won't believe what God will do in bringing people to hear. See, one is a way just to get numbers. Another is a way to win people for the Lord. You let a church learn this essence, the importance of the coming of the Holy Spirit and asking God to lead them in what that means in their particular purpose and mission call, and then you better stand out of the way because God will do a great and marvelous thing. Let me read you this little statement. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, this is from D.M. Dawson, without the power of the Holy Spirit, all human efforts, methods, and plans are as futile as attempting to propel a boat by puffing at the sails with our own breath. All those things, we could try it, but it would be us, right? But God never displays his power for the purpose of showmanship. Last time I looked, there's no neon lights in the sky. But everything that God does has great significance. And the coming of the Holy Spirit was the beginning of that significance for the early believers. They became a church, as we're going to find out. I mean, you read on in the book of Acts. The purpose of Providence Baptist Church is to be a church, a body of believers being led by the Holy Spirit. And we are filled with the Holy Spirit, and God will give us that unction to be witnesses, to be testifiers, to share with everyone else the joy and the wonder of knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Let me finish this up here in the, in the next couple of minutes here. The extraordinary impression on those drawn is important because this is a transitional little section that leads us to the very first Christian sermon, the very first Christian altar call, the very first Christian revival, and people coming to know the Lord. 
But you have to understand that's what God wanted. God wanted to draw attention to these individuals who were being witnesses. In verse 5, there were Jews staying in Jerusalem. They had come to Jerusalem to serve. They were proselytes and some were converts and some were regular Jews. And all of a sudden they heard the sound and it's like, wow, what happened? They were in Jerusalem all in one place and they heard this sound and they began to hear these people speaking in their own languages. Like, wow, did somebody from my hometown come here? And so let's put it simply, it drew a crowd. They came, they heard something going on and it was divine and it drew a crowd. And when, they, when it occurred, they, they got together and they were confused and they were amazed. They said, look, hey, these people shouldn't be doing this. These are unimportant. Galileans were kind of lowlifes. They, they were not the greatest, most culturally in crowd. They, let's put it this way. They weren't on the A-list. They weren't the celebrities. And yet they were doing something amazing, something that was beyond the ability of humankind to do, but something that God himself was doing to make a difference. And then you get this whole long list, all this long list of the names of the people or the, the, the native people that are there. And we read through it, Parthenians and Capodos, from Cappadocia and Pontus and all these places. And they were from all over the world. And this is what it says in verse 11. <clears throat> we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own language, in our own languages. You see, they don't declare, this is going to sound trite, but they don't declare where the best bargain is. They don't declare where how much money you can get or how you can be prosperous. They don't, they're not declaring what you can get out of this. They are declaring what God has done. And see, that's, that's really important to do, to understand. We declare what God has done, he's, what he's done in Jesus Christ. And the people were astounded, and most of them were perplexed, and they asked this question, what does this mean? Now, of course, there were detractors, and some of them said, well, hey, they're just drunk. They got the bottle of new wine out, the ripple or whatever they want to call it, and drink, and they're just drunk. Of course, this leads Peter to stand up and say, hey, they're not drunk, but let me tell you. And he launches into the first Christian sermon. But the point is, the question cannot be ignored. What does this mean? What does all this stuff going on mean? What's the significance of this day? What's happening here? It caused an uproar. They heard the sound. And it was a God-made sound. It wasn't a human-made sound. It was the Holy Spirit. And it was Holy Spirit-driven. And they came to honestly ask the question, what does this mean? I think that's a pretty important thing. There are three things I like to do, and I'm going to finish up here. One is I like in my sermons to be faithful to the Bible, faithful to God's word. Two, to exalt Jesus. And three, to make an application. So I just don't want you to say, oh, well, it was a nice thing he said about Jesus, but 
It doesn't matter to me. So I want to say, so what? This is the so what. Do you live a life where the Holy Spirit makes such a difference that people say, what does this mean to you? See, what happened here was that the Holy Spirit set up the perfect witnessing opportunity. And Peter stands up and delivers it. Do we live a life in such a way that we invite God to open up those doors of witnessing? Do we serve as a church in such a way that people hear, see, recognize that this is something God is doing and they normally and naturally ask this question, what does this mean? Because we get a chance to answer what it means. What it means is that God in his grace and his mercy gave Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And you know what? Of all the things that God has ever done, parting the waters of the Red Sea, right? Getting the Israelites across the Jordan and, and giving them the country of, of, of the nation of Israel, the country of Israel. Of all the things that God has ever done, the greatest and the most magnificent of all was the resurrection of our Savior. He was obedient to the cross and they laid him in the tomb, and God raised him on the third day. And the reason for it wasn't because God was mad they killed his son. It was because God was willing to take his son and his shed blood on the cross in payment for the ransom of our sins. And that's a magnificent act. And they're declaring the magnificent acts of God. So that the world says, what does this mean? And we get to answer it. It means that Jesus loves you, that he died on the cross for your sins. It means that you can come to know our Savior and the forgiveness that he gives. And the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life that honors God. That's tremendous because it shows that we trust him completely with all that we are. I think the world will say to you and me as we're members of this church, what does it mean what's going on down there? What, what does it mean when we come together and we allow God to fill us and we yield our hearts to the Holy Spirit and to his leadership and we seek to be the faithful servants, his faithful servants? I think the application is simple. Will we or won't we? Do we want to see a faith? Oh, sure. It may not be exactly the same as the first believers there in the upper room. But God will do the mighty acts in, in our favor and with us. In many different ways, we'll see people come to know Christ Jesus. We'll deepen in our own faith. We'll help to minister to others who are hurting and in need. But the question is, Will we do it? Will their people say of us, what does this mean? We're going to have a hymn of invitation and I'm encouraging, I'm gonna ask the uh, musicians to come now. I think we have it in the bulletin is Christ is mine forever. And as they come up and get ready, let's sing this song in a couple of ways, but one way in particular, 
Will you let the Holy Spirit fill you? You know, it's easy to do it my way. It's easy to be self-centered. It's easy to want the things that I want. But do you, will you ask for Christ to give you the things that he wants? To allow the Holy Spirit to fill you, to yield to the Holy Spirit? Not, not just for your own personal Christian life, but for the witness, for the church, for all of us together to be that kind of church that God wants us to be. Will you make that your commitment as you sing? Let's stand and sing our invitation hymn.